0: Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. And let's just read tonight from verse 1. For John said, No, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Guys, as we have already said, heaven will be the absence of all the negatives. An existence where there won't be any death or pain or sorrow of any kind. Total freedom from the hardships that his people endured on the earth during their lives especially our brothers and sisters today who live in communist countries or uh, muslim nations how they are persecuted every day often killed for their faith this is something that we need to embrace and remember now (laughs) i guess i just need to mention this because it's something that you hear but uh, there are some who i have heard say things like well when i see god he's got some explaining to do i'm going to give him a piece of my mind you know and the ones who say things like that uh, are the ignorant the unsaved or even the very immature carnal christians when you know god um, i heard years ago somebody on the radio was talking about how he had counseled somebody who was going through a very difficult time, maybe lost a spouse or something. And this person was mad at God. And this pastor encouraged that. God's a big God. You can be mad at him. He, he, he doesn't get hurt. Just Go ahead and vent. And I thought, well, that's dumb advice. <laughs> and I can understand how very immature Christians might not be mature enough to not be angry at God for something. All as I know is the more we walk with God and grow in the Lord, the less we you know, would ever think of uh, venting at God. God is holy, God is perfect, and I belong to him. And whatever he allows to enter into my life, stuff, stuff that I don't bring myself personally. It's a lot of trouble we go through that we brought in ourselves. But if we're just serving the Lord, loving the Lord, and living for him as best we can, and we go through adversity, a spirit-filled child of God understands that this is how we grow. This is how we grow. The Arabs have a proverb, all sunshine makes a desert. Well, that's very true in the Christian life. And God will not allow us to keep going through one good time after another. He'll break some adversity because it keeps us on our knees and it helps us to grow in our faith in trusting him um, we see maturity all the way back in the old testament um, in the words of job now you all know job of course uh, from his book how that it opens up by telling us he was if not the richest one of the richest men in the world in that part of the world in those days he had thousands of heads of you know cattle and flocks and all kinds of animals very wealthy man had ten children and we know that god allowed satan to get at him not because god hated Job, but because god uses us to bring glory to himself and to teach us things and so on one day um all his wealth was gone all his cattle livestock flocks herds they were all stolen And uh, his ten children were in one of their siblings' house um, celebrating something. And uh, like a tornado came, struck the house, collapsed, and killed all ten of them. We read in Job 1, verses 20 to 22. Then Job arose, tore his clothes, and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and cursed God. He fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin with his mouth, nor charge God with wrong. Now, that is the heart of somebody who really knows and walks with God. And, um, All these people that think, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, why did he let my wife die? Why did he let this happen? When we see the glory of God, we're not going to remember anything like that. All we're going to do is simply be overwhelmed that we're in the presence of God, and that's going to be forever. So verse 5, then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Behold, I make all things new is actually in the Greek. Behold, I am making, continually making all things new. In other words, once God makes everything new, he will continue to keep it all new. The idea being that things will never wear out and grow old ever again. God will keep them perpetually young and fresh and, new. and the reason for that is found in chapter 22, verse 3, where it says to us, There shall be no more curse. The fall of man brought the curse, which included certain physical laws that were brought to bear, in particular the second law of thermodynamics that deals with entropy. Entrop- entropy is the degree of disorder in a system. So entropy was the result of sin where now everything in creation is going from order to disorder, from integration to disintegration, from young to old, things are wearing out, growing old, rusting, dying, decaying, etc. But in the eternal state, the curse will finally and forever be removed, including all entropy, as God continually keeps everything brand new. I heard a pastor say one time, teaching on this, he said, in heaven, if you came to me and said, can I borrow your old shovel? I would say, no, you can borrow my brand new shovel. But you've had it for a couple million years. It's brand new. I don't know if there'll be shovels in heaven, but he was making a point. I get it. Okay. I like what Henry Morris, I'm going to be quoting a lot from Henry Morris tonight. Henry Morris was a devout Christian, a very godly man, a brilliant scientist. No, he was not a Christian scientist. He was just a scientist who was just a godly Christian, right? And I love his commentary on Revelation, so I'm going to quote from it because he brings up some interesting things as we go through our study tonight. First quote by Morris. He said, along these lines of entropy being no more. He said, and I quote, Presumably this means not only that everything will be made new, but also that everything will then stay new. The entropy law will be repealed. Nothing will wear out or decay, and no one will age or atrophy anymore. Hallelujah. All things will be and remain eternally new, just as they were in the week of creation itself. End quote. Yeah. Now, guys, here's something that maybe you didn't consider. I I thought of it right away because this is about how my mind works. I believe this is also going to apply to our feelings with regard to our surroundings in heaven and also including our activities in heaven, like our perpetual worship of God. What do I mean? The millionth time you worship God in heaven, or the billionth time, will be as glorious and fresh as the first time. You ever enjoy something initially, and then it gets old after a while, right? And that's one of the things that skeptics atheists agnostics throw out at us about heaven you know why would i want to spend eternity on some cloud playing a harp that doesn't sound any fun at all well that's not going to be heaven but if god did put that you know us on that cloud playing that harp you would be tickled pink (laughs) for all of eternity i'm just saying though that what the bible i believe is teaching is that we are never going to get bored of heaven You know, you, you, I don't know, um, you move into a new house, and initially it's awesome, you love it, you can't, oh, this is the best house I've ever owned. After a few months, it's a house. And then after a few more months, eh, you know, you get bored, you get used to it, familiarity breeds kind of a contempt, okay. Um, But we're never going to get bored of heaven nor of worshiping our God in heaven. You say, how is that possible? I don't know. But with God, all things are possible. So I don't know how he's going to keep everything new around us, but he's going to keep everything new within us. Our heart, our attitude, our zeal, our joy. It's going to be renewed probably moment by moment, all throughout eternity. Now, some people have asked, okay, we get our glorified bodies, we're in heaven now. Um. How old are we going to be? I I, I don't really know. Uh, Okay, Uh, I'll give you an educated guess. My guess is we'll be around thirty. You know, I'm more I'm more interested in how tall we're going to (laughs) be. How much how much hair we're going to have? Um, you know. Uh, but, I, but people have, have made the suggestion that we're going to be around 30 years of age. Um, why is that? Well, first of all, they talk about Adam and Eve, how that when they were created, uh, they were created mature, right? Now, we don't know how old, but they were created mature, old enough to have kids. God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? And there's a lot of folks that believe that they were around 30 years of age. Uh, Because, again, God made them, you know, when he made Adam, boom, Adam was fully formed. He was mature. And then when he made Eve from Adam, uh, she was fully formed and mature. The running debate, not with me because I don't care, but with many people is, did Adam have a belly button? People debate the dumbest things. I don't know if I was a betting man I'd say probably (laughs) because God made everything you know like it was supposed to be and um, somebody said you know if you were in the garden five minutes after God created all these trees all mature if you cut one of them down and looked you know inside you'd probably see annular rings because everything was just created mature as if it had been there for years right I don't know um But there are some other scriptures that I think lend themselves to the idea that we will be about age 30. Uh, In the Old Testament, the priests couldn't serve in the temple until they were 30. The Bible says we're going to be a kingdom of priests to our God. Joseph was 30 when he was made ruler of Egypt. David became king over all of Israel at age 30, and we will reign with the son of David, Jesus Christ. Even Jesus himself entered his earthly ministry at the age of 30. So I don't know. I mean, okay. I mean, Bible doesn't say specifically, but that's some good kind of argument for being about 30 years. I heard somebody say one time, you're at the, you're at the pinnacle at, in your 30s. You know, you're the strongest. You, you know, just everything in your 30s, you outgrow the stupidity of the 20s. And the teens, uh, you know, somebody said, women are their most beautiful in their 30s. Guys are their most virile, the most strong, and so on. So it would just stand to reason that the Lord would want to put us in an age where everything is optimal, right? Verse 5 again, behold, I make all things new. Now, guys, by the time this statement comes true in the eternal state, uh, before that, God will have already made us his people brand new physically, Physically, we were made brand new the moment we received Christ and became new creations. Old things passed away, all things became new, right? That was inwardly. That was our soul, our soul of man inside of us. We're not made new yet physically. That will happen at the rapture um, when he makes us new physically gives us a glorified body and so on all right but i don't know if you realize this when adam and eve sinned in the garden and fell they brought the curse but the curse didn't just come on humanity on them and their descendants it came on the entire creation of god turn to romans chapter eight a lot of christians don't realize this but the whole creation has yet to be redeemed, has yet to be made. All that is inanimate is going to be made brand new. Look at Romans 8, starting with verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So the idea is that, Once we get saved, we're redeemed inwardly. But our body is still subject to death and so on. And so we're waiting for the time when God's going to redeem our physical man. Again, that will happen at the rapture. When that happens and Jesus comes back to the earth, he is going to remake the earth the way God intended it to be, before the fall. And that's what Paul is talking about. He's personifying the creation, making it seem like it's a person. And it's waiting For God to redeem it you know we don't know what the creation was like before the fall Uh, do you realize that in the book of Psalms it was it tells us that Adam and Eve before the fall were clothed in light they were light beings we don't know what creation was before the fall we know that it didn't seem to bother Eve that the servant serpent talked to her right uh, we know that the serpent walked on legs, remember because the curse was that you're gonna crawl in your belly. Uh, but it could be well we know the serpent talked to Eve and tried to did deceive her. Um, but she didn't start screaming and run away for her life because uh, talking snake and no, she just it, it seemed natural. Maybe all the animals in the garden spoke. I don't know, right? But the whole creation suffered the consequences of man's sin, but not just uh, mankind, the earth, and the whole universe, the whole universe. So a lot is going to happen when the rapture takes place and Jesus uh, comes back, and uh, especially when the eternal state is ushered in, which we're studying about in Revelation 21. So verse 5 again, so he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. When Jesus gave John this assignment to write these things down, what we call the book of Revelation, he was still on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea off the coast of Asia Minor or modern Turkey. But history records for us that he was about to be released. Because God had one more assignment for him, and that was to write the book of Revelation and share it with the churches of Asia Minor who would then share it with all of us. All right. One author put it this way, said and I quote, It's as if God is saying, John, write all this down. Put it into their hands. There is coming a day when all the struggles and strife and pain and problems will be done. They will, be, they will have passed away, never to return, and only the peace, love, joy, satisfaction of eternal fellowship will remain. Unquote. And you know, when you are living in an area that is rife with persecution as a child of God, um, when you couldn't work Smyrna because there were guilds back then that were forerunners of our trade unions, And every guild had a patron god or goddess. And every morning they would pledge allegiance to Apollo or Aphrodite or some god or goddess that was the patron saint of that guild. If you didn't uh, pledge allegiance to that god and the Christians wouldn't, you couldn't work. And so Smyrna, Christians there were very very poor. But Jesus said, in my eyes you're very rich because you have stood up for me. You have placed me before anything else. But this would have been a great blessing to hear uh, after John had wrote, written this book down. And John, many believe, thinks uh, they think he was the overseer, the bishop uh, of uh, the churches of the Revelation, the seven churches of Asia Minor. That was John's area. He was over those churches. And to write this down and to put it into their hands and tell them, look, the Lord wanted me to write this and give it to you, write this down, give it to you. He wants you to know it's not going to always be like this. It's rough now, but it's not going to always be like this. There's and, I, and, and, and these words of mine are faithful and true. You don't ever doubt them. There's coming a day when all this will be over. All the struggles, all the persecution, all the heartache, all the death, sorrow, pain, all of it is going to be over. And what will await you is an eternity of joy unspeakable, full of glory, right? As somebody has said, if you are an unbeliever today, this is as good as it's ever going to get, this life here. If you're a Christian, this is as bad as it's ever going to get. And we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. So verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. Now, someone might be thinking, wait a minute, didn't Jesus say that from the cross? It is done? How many times can something be done? Well, that depends on what is in view as being done, all right? Actually, from the cross, Jesus said, it is finished The telestai in the Greek, which literally means paid in full. But let me explain this by saying that our salvation takes place on three different levels: past, present, and future. All right. First of all, the Bible teaches that we as Christians have been saved from the penalty of sin. We're not going to hell. We have been past and saved from the penalty of sin we're not going to hell and guys that is the it is finished from the cross jesus paid our debt making salvation possible for all who receive him as savior and so the work of redemption is done it's finished Uh, it has been paid in full on the cross of calvary jesus paid with his own blood and guys i feel sorry for those christians who go to churches that have taught them, and they have bought into it, that what Jesus actually meant was, it's almost done. It's almost finished. That's what he really said from the cross. You know, it's almost done. It's almost finished. You know, my, I did my part. Now you have to do your part to fulfill the work of your salvation. You know, going to church, lighting candles, praying the rosary, keeping sacraments. All that is necessary to finish the work I started for you on the cross, allowing you to someday be worthy enough to get into heaven. I'm so thankful the Lord didn't say that. In fact, Paul rebuked the Galatians for believing and teaching it. Oh, foolish, chapter 3, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should, should turn so quickly from the gospel, the grace that I've given to you, to another gospel? you think that you're going to add to the completed work of christ to make yourself more worthy to go to heaven or whatever you're very foolish paul said you are really putting yourself in the devil's bullseye when you think your salvation is dependent on your works your goodness and so on so guys first of all we have been saved from the penalty of sin we're not going to hell Secondly, we are being, present tense, being saved from the power of sin right here on the earth right now. Once we get saved, that's not the end, that's the beginning. Now we live a life where the Lord is drawing us to himself. 2 Corinthians 3.18, that the Spirit of God is working in each and every one of us, day by day conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. It's called sanctification. Sanctification being more and more christ-like that goes on throughout our entire christian life here on the earth and as it continues and we grow in grace and in the knowledge of jesus christ our savior uh, we are made more and more like him we are living more and more of a holy life sin doesn't have as much of a hold on us as it used to bad habits begin to fall by the wayside and different things begin to happen and uh i've remember reading about a very godly uh godly young man died at 29 robert murray mcshane very godly man but after he got saved in his uh in his um memoirs he talked about how he had gone to a tavern um you know once again as a young believer gone to a tavern and uh there he really misrepresented the lord and the holy spirit laid such a heavy conviction on him that it was the last time he ever set foot in a in a bar or tavern Uh, but we grow right we're growing in grace we're not perfect the moment we get saved right somebody has said you know um because christians want to put each other down in a sense right um you know my pastor told a story about somebody who came to him and said uh pastor chuck I was in the church parking lot after service and I saw so-and-so walk out and light a cigarette as they got into their car. That's terrible, right? And Chuck said, first of all, how do you know that three weeks ago they weren't smoking marijuana? And God has been working and now it's just cigarettes. And that will eventually be taken away as well. We're all a work in progress. And let's not kick each other when we're down but pray for one another love each other right i mean what person here would be mad at a three-year-old because they couldn't run a marathon with the 25 year olds you don't expect a a three-year-old toddler to run a marathon they're not ready for that they will be someday but not today there are some church christians that will go on to be incredible um servants of god But right now, they're growing in grace. So let's pray for them, right? But I like what Paul said in Philippians 1, verse 6. Uh, Let me just say this. um, This sanctification process, by the way, will be completed or done at the moment of salvation. So right now, we're growing. And that growth will happen the rest of our lives on the earth. But when the rapture happens... Whatever is left will be instantaneous. Uh, Philippians 1 6, Paul said, Being confident of this very thing, that he was begun a good work in you, that started at the moment of salvation, will complete it until the day of Christ. The day of Christ is the rapture when Christ comes for his church. So whatever God is doing in your life now, you're a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. When the angel shouts and the trumpet blasts and Jesus says, come up here, on the way up, and it's going to be a quick flight, on the way up, we're going to be made like him. We're going to be made perfect. And that's what John says, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, that would be the rapture, he comes for his church, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is be made like jesus glorified right so again we have been saved past tense from the penalty of sin we are being saved present tense from the power of sin and number three we will be saved future from the presence of sin and guys this is the it is done of revelation 21 verse Six. We know that because later on in chapter 22, verse 15, John tells us, But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. The outside, but outside, the outside is a reference to the outer darkness, the lake of fire. That's where all unbelievers will wind up. We will be completely separate from them. We won't you know, mingle with them. Right now we are in a fallen world and we pray for people that are not saved and we understand that. uh, First of all, we can't isolate ourselves. That would be wrong to do that. That's what monasteries and nunneries are all about. That's not what God says. He said, go into all the world. Interact with people. They need the light of my truth, right? But, you know, um well the bible goes on to say in uh, that in the new jerusalem nothing that defiles will ever enter into it it's pure and it's holy outside way out in the outer darkness in the farthest reaches of the universe there will be a star burning with no light as we have talked about where the unbelievers are cast into for eternity the lake of fire or hell um Again, Revelation 6, 21, verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. And let me just say this about that statement. I I really think what is in view when God said, uh, Jesus said, it is done, that all the promises of of God are done being fulfilled. Think about it. How many promises are in the Bible geared to, to believers? As we come to this point in the eternal state, they have all without fail been fulfilled. It's all done. Everything I promise you has been fulfilled, right? He said, "I am the excuse me. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end." So, here Jesus calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, uh, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet interpreted by the phrase the beginning and the end and guys this identifies the speaker here as none other than the lord jesus christ who was introduced to us way back in genesis uh, in uh, no that's going a little too far back way back in revelation chapter 1 verse 8 as the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end these are clearly titles that belong to god and god alone right that he is the first and last, the Alpha and the Omega. These are clearly titles belonging to Yahweh alone. Let me read to you uh, two passages out of Isaiah. Isaiah 41, verse 4. Who has done such mighty deeds, summoning each new generation from the beginning of time? Is it I? It is I, the Lord, the first and the last, I alone, am he isaiah 44 verse 6 this is what the lord says israel's king and redeemer israel's king and redeemer they're one and the same the lord of heaven's armies i am the first and the last there is no other god if you have any jehovah's witness friends and if you do you won't have them after you share this with them I just want to bring it to your attention. But, um, you know, I've had JWs come to the door. You know, I let them in. We talk. You know, one time Pastor Eric Mentz was there with me in my kitchen or having coffee with me when uh, uh, a Job's Witness couple came, married couple. And we invited them right in. Very sweet couple. Very sweet couple. Very sincere. And we had a nice hour long talk. And one of the things that we brought up is that I brought up, with other encounters with Job's witnesses. You, you take them to Revelation and show them where Jesus said, I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, right? Who is talking there? Well, that's Jesus. Okay. Take them back to Isaiah 41, chapter 44, and you show them the statement where God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. You ask him, Well, who is speaking there? Well, that's Jehovah God. But in Revelation, you just said that Jesus said he's the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. I mean, you know, what's that all about? Well, you see, Jehovah is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. He's an almighty God. But Jesus is just a mighty God. Not an almighty Jehovah God, but a mighty God who is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Well, how many first and last can you have? Isn't that pretty clear? when God says, I am the first and I am the last, the Alpha and the Omega, he identifying himself as the one true God. And when Jesus uses the title, or it's used of him, it's the Holy Spirit's way of telling us that the God of the Old Testament and Jesus Christ are one and the same God. And John's Gospel goes into that in great detail all the way through his Gospel. But again, Revelation 21, verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who what? Thirsts, right? Um, I will give the fountain of the water of life. Could we translate that? I will give them living water without damaging the idea here? Yeah, I think so. All right. Um, you remember in John 4 how that Jesus had gone up to Samaria. His disciples had gone away into the villages to buy some food. And Jesus sat down by a well. We find out it was the well of Sychar, outside the city of, of Samaria, you know. And um, I'm sorry, it was the uh, well of Sychar, outside the town of Sychar, in the land of Samaria, the northern of the kingdom up there and in the course of time a um, Samaritan woman came with her uh, pitcher uh, to draw water from this well and uh, as she comes up Jesus asks her for a drink of water now she's a little taken back by that because she knows she knew how the Jews felt about the Samaritans they hated the Samaritans and so she asked him why are you being a Jew asking me for a drink of water you Jews have no dealings with us and Jesus said if you knew who it was who was asking you for a drink you would have asked him for a drink and for the, the gift of God which he would give to you and she said well sir um, I'd give to you living water and she said well sir the well is deep and you have nothing to draw with how are you going to give me that living water And Jesus said in John 4, verse 13, He answered her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him or her will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. It's interesting how Jesus met her on the same level. I mean, he met her on one level. He was thirsty, she was thirsty, physically. And he used that mutual thirst for physical water to launch into a teaching or a presentation of the gospel uh, where he was telling her, look, this physical water is something you need for life, but if you drink of it, you'll thirst again, right? That's why we keep drinking water or you keep coming out to this well to draw water. But if you drink the water that I give, living water, you'll never thirst again. And it will be like an eternal spring bubbling up within you unto do eternal life. And the idea is that our physical bodies get thirsty, but our soul thirsts also. Now, when the physical body gets thirsty, it's pretty obvious. We, we know how that feels. We know exactly how to quench that thirst. But when it's an inward thirst, a thirst of the soul, sometimes people don't know what to do to quench that thirst. Case in point, this woman was thirsty inside, but she was trying to satisfy that thirst within with human relationships. We, come, we, we find out through the story as Jesus is engaging her that she had been married and divorced five times and was now living with a man. She tried to fill that void within with physical relationships the Bible says very clearly that God has created every one of us with a God shaped void in our soul, in our hearts and that hole can only be filled with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ now a lot of folks don't realize that and so they're, they're like Solomon, pursuing all kinds of things to satisfy that longing or that thirst within it can't do it that's why the Bible talks about the deceitfulness of riches. because So many people try think that riches are going to satisfy that emptiness inside. and it, it's, not, it's never going to happen, right? Uh, as, as the famous quote by John Rockefeller, a very wealthy man who worked 16, 18 hours a day, and a reporter asked him one day, Mr. Rockefeller, you, you have millions of dollars at a time when the millions of dollars really was a lot of money. I mean, why do you keep working all these hours? I mean... How much money is enough? You know the the comeback. Just a little more. That's the deceitfulness of riches. I'm a millionaire, a multimillionaire, but it hasn't satisfied me within. I'm still thirsty, but it's just a little more. That That will finally do it. And it will never do it. And that's why wealthy people often commit suicide because they have the resources to buy whatever they want experience whatever they want go wherever they want buy whatever they want and they're still thirsty inside and so they feel like life has no meaning there's no hope and they wind up committing suicide but jesus made it very clear what people need is living water what does that mean it means jesus living inside of them through the power of the holy spirit who keeps bringing up from within them this incredible fountain of living water that, that spills onto everybody we come in contact with. Right? I mean, we have not been saved to hide out. We have not been saved to become a big, giant reservoir that God pours all this living water in and it stays there. We are a channel. We are connected to the Holy Spirit through the new birth, and the Spirit of God wants to Gush forth from our lives onto everybody we come in contact with. If we're walking in the Spirit, it'll ha- it'll happen, right? Um, another one. And I will have you turn to this. John seven. I'm going to give to you the simplest and most succinct gospel presentation in the Bible. Actually, not me. Jesus did it, but I'm going to. I'll relay it to you. Okay, John seven starting with verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, that would be the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So I believe what's in view here is something called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a separate, often subsequent work of the Holy Spirit, a spirit apart from salvation. So when you open your heart to Christ, at that moment the Spirit moves in. You're born again, right? The spirit of God now inhabits you. But often there is a separate or a further work that God wants to do called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. This is not, does not deal with salvation. It deals with service, right? We'll get to this in more detail when we get to um, well, in John's Gospel. But let me just say this. Jesus' disciples walked with him for three and a half years. They were saved, except for Judas. But the other 11 were saved, right? And yet they were saved in the Old Testament sense, like Isaiah was saved, and David was saved, and Moses, and so on, right? After Jesus rose from the dead, they were all in the upper room, remember? And uh, they were hiding out because they were afraid the Romans were coming for them next. And Jesus comes right through the wall, locked door, he comes right through the walls, stands in their midst, and basically says, peace be unto you. My peace I give to you, right? And then it says he breathed on them, and they did did what? They received the Holy Spirit. Well, to understand what's going on, you've got to back up to chapter 14 in the upper room, where Jesus said, look, I'm going away soon. Where where I'm going, you can't follow me. Not yet. I'll come back for you. But I don't want your hearts to be troubled. I'm not going to leave you alone like infant children. I'm going to send back to you another helper, the Holy Spirit who will abide with you forever. And when he comes, right, uh, he will lead you into all truth. He will testify of me. He said, and he uh, he is with you right now. He will someday be in you. So when Jesus breathed on them, their relationship with the Holy Spirit was elevated. He had been with them, The Spirit of God is with everybody in the world who's an unbeliever. What is he doing with them? Trying to draw them to Christ. And once they open their heart to Christ, he moves in. Now, these men, when Jesus breathed on them and the Spirit came in them, he was with them, now he is in them. At this point, they became technically New Testament Christians. Why do I say that? Because Paul tells us in Romans 8, if you don't believe in the resurrection, the spirit of God is not. You know, if you don't believe, you know, certain things about Jesus and his death and resurrection, you you can't be a, a, a New Testament Christian. So now they see the risen Christ. He had told them he was going to die. Three days later, he was going to resurrect, but they didn't hear that last part because they were so big, they would die. What do you mean you're going to die? You're going to you're going to lead us in a revolt against Rome. You're going to establish the kingdom. You can't die. They, their brains clicked, turned off. Never heard, in three days I'm going to rise again. So now they see it. Remember how, we'll talk about this more Sunday. Remember how the word of the resurrection took them all by surprise. They were not looking for him to be to rise from the dead. But now the risen Lord Christ is standing right in front of them. He breathes on them, Spirit of God comes in them. Now they are New Testament Christians. He spends 40 more days with them before he ascends back to his father. And before he ascends back to his father, he says to them, Now go back and wait in Jerusalem until I send upon you the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. When he comes upon you, you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all around the world, wherever I send you that is the baptism of the holy spirit where the spirit of god now comes upon a believer he will only come upon a believer someone that he is already in and this is an empowering for service and i believe that's what really was in mind here in john 7 however to be filled or baptized with the holy spirit you first have to be saved and i see here In this first uh, couple of verses, how Jesus lays out the gospel as simply as possible. Here it is. If anyone, what? Thirsts, comes, and drinks. That's a very simple way of saying anyone who thirsts for a relationship with me, God. Anyone who comes to me and drinks. He goes on to define drinks as he who believes in me, as the scripture has said. Um, but this idea of living water, guys, uh, just make it simple, uh, just to kind of say this. When you see living water in, in the New Testament, understand living water was running water. Running water. The best source of water to have would be from a stream or a spring, something that was moving, right? Um, If you had to, you you could take your water from a standing pool, but that was not always the healthiest choice. And if they lived in areas where there was no lakes or rivers or springs, they would have to dig themselves a cistern. A cistern was nothing more than a big hole in the ground that you'd carve out out of the rock, right? And after you got it done, you'd make channels that would all lead to the mouth of the cistern. And whenever it rained, water would fill your cistern, and that's what you would use for your water, right? But it was not the best, you know, how after a while it gets kind of that stagnant smell and the little, what is that little, I don't know, not minnows, but the little things that are squirting, squirming around in there and they're, whatever they're called. Um, you know, stuff you don't want in your water. Let's put it that way, okay? Okay. Um, But when you tell somebody, look, I want to give to you living water, they knew what that meant. Whatever water you're talking about, that's the best. It's the best. It's the purest, the freshest, the sweetest tasting, that kind of thing. And that was all wrapped up in Jesus' presentation. I'm the living water. Your life might be dreary. Your life might be hard. Things going on. You feel empty. Your life has no purpose, meaning you need living water because when i come inside of you when you open your heart to me and i take up residence through the holy spirit inside of you he's going to be like that fountain of living water constantly fresh constantly new and uh, you'll be a source of living water to those around you your family friends and so on right Um, i'll give you one more revelation 22 verse 17 And the Spirit, is the last invitation in the Bible. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Salvation is a free gift. I'm just saddened when I hear people say that, they believe their salvation is not a free gift, they have to earn it. And that's very sad. Because I grew up in a denomination that taught that. The Catholic Church teaches that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the Son of God, who died for our sins, rose again the third day. They got that right. But then what they do is they add to that simple message Jesus said, It's finished. You don't have to add anything else, right? But the Catholic Church, and they're not alone, by the way, says, you know what, it's not, that's not enough. You have to go to church and light the candles and pray the rosaries and keep the sacraments and the holy days and so on. And that's how you earn little installments of grace. That's how they teach. And through these little installments of grace, grace is not a free gift in the Catholic Church and in other churches. It is a um, a way by which you earn your salvation by, by, by earning little installments of grace. And when you earn enough, how much is that? Nobody knows. You can earn heaven. Uh, listen, let me just share with you one more time my green stamp story. Some of you have not heard it. Some of you are too young to have experienced it. But when I was a kid, and this is a long time ago, when I was a kid, when you would go to the store and buy something, they would always give you a number of little green stamps, depending on how much money you spent. And behind the counter, there were always the booklets that were free that would hand them out to you. And what you would do is you would take and you would paste your green stamps into your book, and then they had a redemption center, right? And they had a little catalog that went along with it that you could get. They give it to you for free. And you could look through this catalog and for, I don't know, uh, 20 green stamp books, you could get your toaster for a hundred, a bike for your kids, whatever it was, right? Here was the problem. The stamps were sticky. And so often when you put them in your book, Some of the glue would bleed over and it would glue the other page, the blank page, to the one you had just filled up with stamps. Now, when you took it to the Redemption Center, don't you know, they looked through those books and they would, you know, and then here you are, you got your enough, finally got enough to get that, I don't know, that weed whacker, whatever you wanted. And they're looking through it and you got all your books and oh, look at, there's a blank page. Sorry, I can't let you have, you know, whatever. Some people seem to imagine, like, that's what goes on in heaven. Like, you know, I got my little book, and I'm pasting in all my good works. And if God would just simply tell us, well, to get into heaven, you have to have X amount of green stamp books or whatever, Uh, but he doesn't tell us that because it's not true. But some people think that they're going to show God all their good works, and gonna earn heaven when they stand before him not realizing that this is not like you know some earthly thing where you're going to earn prizes for all that you've bought and paid for we do have a book it's called our ledger and in it God writes every sin we have ever committed thought word and deed and the day you accept Christ as your Savior as we have talked about Jesus said paid in full from the cross and dismissed, bowed his head and dismissed the spirit and the moment I receive him as my Savior God takes my book and with the blood of Christ writes on the bottom to tell us die paid in full and I don't have to worry about God saying oh Phil you missed a page (laughs) whatever because Jesus did all the work he paid the price right Um, so whoever desires let him take of the water of life freely God is inviting everyone to be saved without trying to earn anything in fact Paul said in Galatians 5 I believe if you try to add one ounce I'm paraphrasing If you try to add one ounce of works to a billion pounds of grace, you negate grace. You divorce yourself from Christ, you fall from grace. Because it's either we're saved by grace or we're saved by our works, but we're not saved by both. And works, no way, because you have to be perfect and nobody's perfect. So there's only one way, and that was the whole idea behind the law, to show Israel and everyone else that, look, there is no way you're gonna keep the law and be perfect. We're not perfect people. We're all sinners. And the idea is that, you know, um, you're never gonna keep the law perfectly to earn heaven. God knew that. So why do he give us the law? To point us to Christ. And of course, the Jewish people were the ones who went through this, but the idea was that God wanted the law to be their, what the Bible calls schoolmaster um, paragogos, I think is the Greek term, which was uh, an instructor, uh, somebody that a wealthy family would hire to take care of the kids and teach the kids and, and, and just kind of, you know, a nanny, somebody like that, right? And they would be used to bring the child to maturity. Now, once the child grew up, was mature, they didn't need a paragogos anymore. Now they were mature. And they could take care of themselves. And the idea was that God gave the law to be a tutor, an instructor to teach that you cannot keep these laws for righteousness. What would that do? Well, hopefully it would break somebody to the point where they would cry out, God, I I can't live this way. I can't keep these laws. Is there another way that I could get to heaven? Of course. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. And the life, nobody comes to the Father except through me, and so this is very important. But it's all the idea is that we need to understand that the gospel is something God is offering um, freely, freely. And um, let's just bring this to a close uh, here in Revelation twenty-two verse seventeen. He's inviting anybody who wants to, get to go to heaven, who wants to live in heaven. Uh, be a citizen of heaven, he is offering the water of life freely, the gospel, to anyone. Right? The only prerequisite is that you be thirsty. Thirsty. As one author said, and I quote, nothing on earth satisfies, not wealth, fame, pleasure, or possessions. There is only one thing that can quench the deep thirst of the soul, and that is God himself. People who thirst after God are promised that they shall drink of the water of the spring of life. Drinking and thirst uh, drinking and thirst are common pictures of God's supply and man's spiritual need. Drinking is an action, but an action of receiving, like faith. It's it is doing something but not uh, a meritorious work in itself. These are the ones God calls overcomers. The overcomers will inherit all this all that God has newly created, end quote. So receiving God's gift of salvation, eternal life, yeah, we do something, we believe, but the Bible says that is not a meritorious act. A meritorious act would be doing something to earn something. And you handing me a gift, and I reach out and receive it, nobody applauds me, you know, because I you know, accepted it. They applaud the one who graciously gives the gift. Um, and so on but well let's uh, stop there okay um we will uh, we're getting close to the end in more ways than one so uh we're going to be finishing revelation soon sooner than you think actually uh and then we are going to uh, go into another book i would ask you to pray that god would lead what does he want us to go into next um and we'll uh see what he says father we thank you for your word and we thank you lord for your great and precious promises in your word we thank you lord jesus that you loved us so much that you came down set your glory aside and eventually went to the cross to die for sinners that we might be saved by grace we thank you lord father we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.